Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, defending her policies on transgender issues. I want to make sure that young people are not closing off options to themselves prematurely. The Alberta Premier comes to Ottawa to reopen a provincial office and to address the Economic Club of Canada. But it is the controversy on trans policies introduced last week that have dominated her visit. Coming up, we will speak with Premier Danielle Smith. Also, the decision to come out to one's family does not belong to a teacher, a school, it definitely does not belong to a premier. The Trudeau government says it is standing with Alberta's trans community, so how will it respond to Premier Smith? Edmonton Centre MP and Minister of Employment Randy Boissonneau is standing by. And is Justin Trudeau keeping his promise to the Métis people? The president of the Métis Council, Casti Canon, is on our program. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Alberta Premier made her way to Ottawa today, reopening an Alberta office in the nation's capital and addressing the Economic Club of Canada. But wherever Danielle Smith went, she was asked about her transgender policies introduced last week and greeted by a protest in front of Parliament Hill. Well, joining us now is the Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith. Uh, Premier Smith, thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Listen, I want to begin, first and foremost, as to why you thought it was important to introduce these trans policies. You know, why not leave it to schools? Why not leave it to, to health care professionals, even sports bodies? Why insert the government into the, to a matter that essentially is very personal? Well, I can tell you, I, I had a, an early warning sign a few months ago when I met with Lo Lois Cardinal who is a, a transgender woman who is, she was actually seeking medical assistance and dying in Alberta because she had surgery, she thinks prematurely, felt forced into it and then didn't get very good aftercare. And it got me thinking if she started that, that process of transition at 19 and has those kinds of regrets, we wanna make sure that, there are, that these decisions are being made at an age appropriate level where kids are able to deal with the consequences, long-term consequences of their choices. And we think that that happens at a, a bit of an older age. So we wanted to set some guideposts in place, and that's the reason why we, we came through with the policies. Yeah, well, except that, you know, conservatives often talk about individual choice. Uh, you yourself have warned against government overreach. Is this not a form of government overreach? If there is one particular case, for example, where someone is expressing regret, again, why not just turn to healthcare professionals, let their professional bodies create different policies as opposed to inserting the government. Well, because there isn't any one viewpoint on this around the world. In fact, we're seeing in, in the UK with the closure of their Tavistock clinic, we're seeing in, uh, in the Netherlands where the protocol began that they're also taking a bit more of a cautious approach. Same with some, uh, several other European countries. And so we, we think it's important if, if people are concerned that, that kids are making life altering decisions, 
irreversible decisions too young. We want to make sure we're doing the proper diligence, giving them the proper support, and making sure that they're making those decisions in, a, in an appropriate age. So those are the, the reasons why we're doing it. But to my understanding, the only thing that really is irreversible is, is gender reassignment surgery, uh, bottom surgery, for example. Everything else can be dealt with medically afterwards if, there, if there's a change of course, is there not? I think at Tavistock they discovered that 100% of the kids who begin with puberty blockers go on to do cross-sex hormones. So it is the beginning of the process. And we want to make sure that when kids are making that decision, that they're making it at an age where they know the consequences and they know the pathway that they're on. And so the, the feedback that we've gotten as well is that parents want to be involved in what's going on in their kids' lives. Because these decisions, once they're made, happen very quickly. And they're going to need all the support of their, the loving adults in their lives around them. So we want to make sure that there isn't any division between the, the, the child and the, uh, the, the adults who are their caregivers. But if an adult, if parents decided, for example, that their child, uh, in conversation, uh, should be pursuing a hormone blocker or some type of gender-affirming therapy. Uh, under these proposals, if you're under the age of 16, that's not available to you. Is it really the government's place to say it shouldn't be available to you if you have individual consent and parental consent? Well, it's not a parent's decision on those kinds of issues. It's not a doctor's decision on those kinds of issues. It's not, it's not a politician's decision. It's the person's decision. And so we have to make a judgment about whether or not that child is mature enough to understand the long-term consequences of uh, affecting their reproductive health, their ability to have children. And so um, most uh, practitioners agree that that age of, of maturity comes somewhere around age 16. And that's part of the reason why we put the, the policies in place. Uh, you've heard this, uh, trans activists, they're upset by what was introduced last week. Uh, they make the argument that essentially it is abusive to bring about policies that, that limit gender-affirming therapies. Uh, they say that uh, someone who has to go through, through puberty uh, not affirming their gender is excruciatingly painful. That leads to self-doubt, questions, oftentimes suicidal thoughts. Are you concerned that you, you might be contributing to the, to the challenge of suicide with trans kids with this? I, I can tell you that there is not a single viewpoint in the LGBT plus community that uh, we've, we've had many people who've expressed concern as kids are exploring their identity, that they are, are not locked into a position prematurely. If they're going to make a decision that's going to alter their, their sex and affect their reproductive health, it, it, the advice that we've been given is those are decisions that are adult decisions. And so we're going to make sure that we're preserving those choices for kids. Uh, Randy Boissonneau, who of course hails from Alberta, Alberta uh, he says with this policy you are bringing in an American-style cultural war to Canada. We've also spoken to others who, who say this is purposely a wedge issue by which you are gaining support by dividing Albertans. What do you say to that? Look, we've been, we've been watching the discussion. We've been very thoughtful as we've watched the discussion play out in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick as well as internationally and around the world. And we, we think it's important, especially with the case that I mentioned at the top, that if there are individuals who feel like they have uh, made the decision prematurely or were pressured, we, we want to make sure that there's a considered approach to that process. That uh, young people need to know that when they make their decisions, that, they're, that it has lifelong consequences. And the question is, at what age should a child be able to make those kinds of life-altering decisions? And we think that age is 16. Uh, we saw people come out this weekend opposing to what was introduced last week. Is there 
any room for amendment for you? Is there any room for changing what you've introduced? Look, we're, we're going to have discussions. We wanted to put it on the table, and I'll continue to, to have um, discussions, feedback with, with parents, with, uh, with teachers, with medical professionals, understanding that uh, there isn't uh, one right answer on this. There, there isn't one viewpoint. There's multiple viewpoints, and so we've got to balance that and make sure that everything that we do is done through the lens of what's best for the child and making sure that, that children preserve all of their choices, I think should be what is, uh, what is guiding our decisions. Now, of course, the, the questions around the trans policy have dominated your visit here in Ottawa, but you've been busy uh, beyond this as well. You've reopened the Alberta office. You gave a keynote address to, to the Economic Club of Canada. Are, are you afraid that the other priorities that you're trying to bring to Ottawa have been eclipsed now by the policies introduced last week? Well, I can tell you we had, I think, almost 300 people at the Economic Club of Canada, and they really uh, resonated with the message that I gave to them, which is Alberta's open for business. We love wealth creators. We love job creators. We have the, the best tax structure in, in the country by far, and we want to make sure that everybody knows that Alberta's open for business because uh, we think that as our economy does well, it generates the revenues that allows us to pay for the important social programs people care about. So I, I think that message was heard loud and clear. Premier Daniel Smith, I know you've had a very busy day. Thank you for making the time. My pleasure. And that was Premier Daniel Smith from earlier today. Well, to continue the conversation right now, we have invited Minister Randy Bossineau to the program. He, of course, in charge of the portfolio for employment, workforce development and official languages and also the MP for Edmonton Centre. Minister, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Michael. So you've had a meeting with Premier Smith. Uh, how do you feel now that you've been able to speak with her face to face after the uh, proposal unveil last week? Well, when it comes to the proposal unveiled last week, um, I left the meeting without any, any greater comfort than I, I headed into the meeting. And uh, Michael, you've probably heard me comment on the people that I've been speaking on the phone with. I've attended a number of rallies and spoken with people in my community and across the province who are quite rightly uh, frightened by these proposals and the, uh, the you know, the, the changing of, of safe spaces in schools and the sort of mishmash of policies designed to, uh, you know, take on and marginalize people who are already uh, marginalized. I said to the Premier directly that I hope that she would stop these proposals. Um, I hope that she would pause and, and consult with people. And I said that these policies are uh, going to lead to more harm of people who are uh, gender, you know, questioning. And I said that we, if these policies go through, we'll see more young people uh, take their lives. So I have no more comfort now than I did before the meeting. Uh, we talked about a bunch of other issues related to uh, what I would call a poor performance on childcare. We gave the province $3.8 billion to put in 62,500 new spaces, both private sector and public sector, and it has not been going well. And she left money on the table in Ottawa last year, and she has a $5.5 billion surplus. So the province can afford to pay childcare workers more money, and it works in British Columbia, it works in Nova Scotia, it works in other jurisdictions, it certainly should work in Alberta. Okay, so, so perhaps a, a more positive, or at least a more productive discussion around childcare. But getting back to the trans proposals introduced last week by, by the Premier, mm -hmm. you have said that your focus here is, is to make sure that trans and LGBTQ kids in Alberta know that the federal government is going to be here for them. Explicitly, in detail, what do you mean by that? What exactly are you going to do to, to try to stand up for LGBTQ youth? So if we take a look at 
our, our government's record on this. We put in place protections for trans people in the uh, Canadian Criminal Code and also in Canadian human rights legislation all the way back to 2017. I mean, the Premier is entirely in her jurisdiction, right, to, to put these policies in place, to tell teachers what to do, to out kids in school, and it's not on. And so, look, we have other means at our disposal. We can mobilize, which is what I'm encouraging people to do right now, to write to their UCP MLAs, particularly those in Calgary and the ones you know around the Edmonton area, to let them know that they want to see this bill defeated before it even gets to the legislature and then I have to see the legislation like I, I talked about with some of your colleagues earlier today Michael and I said I can't comment on the other measures our government might take until I actually see what the legislation uh, contains in it but I and colleagues are going to be watching very closely because I think the other question you have to ask is why is Danielle Smith doing this what is she solving for what is she trying to fix because gender questioning kids queer kids don't need to be fixed they're fine who they are and so i think it's a distraction from uh, some of her disastrous energy policies some of her uh, mismanagement of the healthcare system and the childcare system that we already talked about and just to be fully transparent michael we had constructive conversations with minister wilkinson on a range of energy files and I joined the meeting uh, because Minister uh, LeBlanc was stuck in New Brunswick due to the snowstorm. Uh, but I was very clear with the Premier that we will find common ground where we can to build up the province. But when she takes on the, the 2S LGBTQ uh, plus community, she's got to come through me. Okay, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying about it's hard to be detailed about what exactly you're going to do. But, you know, we have heard uh, some proposals already. Uh, Faye Johnstone, who you know, trans rights advocate, also the executive director of Society of Queer Momentum, she basically makes a suggestion that your government should be holding back uh, essentially Canada Act, uh, Health Act rather, funding, because she says Premier Smith is interfering with families' ability to get their children the health care they need. Uh, EGAL Canada, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, they're thinking of uh, legal action. Is withholding funding, is taking part in a legal lawsuit something that your government's willing to do to counter these proposals? As we said earlier, Michael, op all options on the table, and I was uh, glad when I heard the day after Premier Smith put this these policies out in her video that EGAL Canada was looking at legal action. I'm glad that the Civil Liberties Association is thinking of doing the same. And look, Minister Varani and our government would take a look at both the legislation and the proposed um, legal action and see if we can intervene. When it comes to withholding um, Canada Health Act or money under the Canada Health Act, there are some very clear policies and procedures we have to follow to do that. And let me say this, and I've talked to Minister Holland about this. Um, Jean-Yves Duclos, when he was Minister of Health, withheld money from Alberta for contravening the Canada Health Act uh, during the pandemic. And so there's precedent for this. Anne McClellan uh, withheld money from Ralph Klein in the, uh, in the, in the 90s for uh, not respecting the Canada Health Act when it came to extra billing. And so we will follow this extremely carefully and all options remain on the table. Okay, uh, listen, quickly running out of time here, Minister, but I do want to ask one more question here, because, you know, you know uh, I'm wondering what you would say to parents who believe the Premier is taking a balanced approach here, something that you don't agree. Uh, they believe that she's watching out for vulnerable teens while ensuring that parents have a say in what's happening with their children. Don't parents have a role here? That, Michael, the vast majority of uh, parents in Alberta love their kids and what that means is if they end up being queer, they're gonna let their parents know. What I'm really concerned for are the kids for whom 
uh, parents will not be supportive. And I've had uh, many friends and people in my lifetime for whom when they came out to their parents or when they uh, indicated that, uh, you know, they were going to, you know, change their gender identity, it did not go well. And we have way too many kids that end up on the street, they end up becoming uh, trafficked, they end up dying uh, or taking their own lives uh, because of the fact that they don't have those family supports. And for those kids, the school system is the safest space for them and the Premier wants to remove that safe space. And so to the parents who are compassionate about their kids, we are on the same page. I want to make sure that collectively, we protect those, those kids who don't have that same uh, family environment. Minister Randy Boisneau, thank you for the time this evening. Thanks, Michael. All the best. To London now, where Buckingham Palace says King Charles has been diagnosed with a form of cancer. It was found during a recent hospital stay for prostate surgery. The 75-year-old monarch has started treatment according to a statement and has been advised to postpone public-facing duties. But His Majesty will continue to undertake state business and official paperwork as usual. The statement adding he decided to share his diagnosis in order to prevent speculation. Governor-General Mary Simon and her husband say they are sending their thoughts and best wishes to King Charles and his family, saying in part, quote, seeing His Majesty acknowledge cancer so openly and publicly will hopefully encourage and motivate those who are struggling with their own treatment. We admire the King's strength and determination as he confronts this disease. As for the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau did share a statement on X saying, quote, I, like Canadians across the country and people around the world, am thinking of His Majesty King Charles III as he undergoes treatment for cancer. We are sending him our very best wishes and hoping for a fast and full recovery. Federal ministers met with the Métis National Council last week to advance work on reconciliation and to talk about the upcoming federal budget. So, how did things go? What happened? Well, we're now joined by the president of the Métis National Council, Cassidy Caron. Uh, Ms. Caron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Listen, I want to begin with the meeting that you did have last week with federal officials because afterwards you were expressing some frustration. I'm wondering what that is about. Are you concerned that your meetings are becoming more... Uh, perhaps symbolic as opposed to substantive? So that was the concern going into the meeting. Um, I think after the meeting, there was a renewed sense of commitment to the actual process, the permanent bilateral mechanism, but there, there still is some frustration in needing to continue to make progress and the investments that are behind the policy areas that we are jointly committed to. And without future investments into these areas, we show up at these tables time and time again, recommitting to the same priority areas, talking about the needs of, of Métis citizens and the Métis nation as a whole, and not being able to make progress until those investments are made. Now there was an investment in education from what I saw. What else is missing for you though out of these discussions? So the investment into education was very small. It is the first of its kind ever really into um, primary and secondary education for the Métis nation, which is a really good step in the right direction. It's 
its capacity dollars so that we can continue down um, the, the path of creating um, policy around primary and secondary education for the Métis Nation. But for us, you know, one of the big frustrations is the lack of progress that has been made on a Métis sub-accord. Uh, we have been talking about making progress on self-determined Métis priorities to achieve equitable health care for the Métis Nation for seven years now. Um, time and time again, we will sign memorandums of understanding, talking about how we will uh, negotiate a sub-accord, but budget after budget, there's no allocations made specifically for the Métis Nation to move forward on that priority, and our MOUs expire. So we're, we're faced with that challenge again, um, with an MOU expiring at the end of this fiscal. Um, so that puts a timeline on the negotiations of a, a health sub-accord to be able to provide supports to our Métis governments so that they can create the actual change that's needed in the lives of Métis citizens. Okay, so Memorandum of Understanding expires by the end of this fiscal, but there is a federal budget before that. Exactly. Do you have any hope that any of your concerns will be addressed in the next federal budget? So we really hope so. Uh, the timing of this permanent bilateral mechanism meeting is quite good to have the recommitment of all of these federal ministers about the priority areas, so economic development, health, education, emergency management. We have received recommitment from these ministers that they want to make progress on these areas. It's important for the Métis Nation, it's important for Canada. So bringing that, um, that weight to meetings with the Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, to ensure that the asks that we have for Budget 2024 are taken seriously so that we can continue to move forward down these, this, this pathway to ultimately reconciliation. Well, as these discussions go on with the government, there's also, as you know at this point, the, the Bill C-53 making its way through Parliament. And, and according to that bill, it will ratify self-government agreements with the, uh, between Ottawa and the Métis Nation of Ontario, the Métis Nation in Saskatchewan, and the Métis Nation of Alberta. But it is being opposed by the Métis Federation in Manitoba as well as uh, Ontario First Nations, primarily because of the inclusion of the Ontario Métis. I'm wondering how that kind of debate is affecting the discussions you yourself uh, with your organizations having with the federal government. So Bill C-53 is at this point separate from the negotiations that we have on budget 2024. Um, this afternoon or this morning actually Bill C-53 did make it through the INAN process and it has been referred back for third reading back to the House. So we're hopeful for that. Um, that takes place and then also the budget. You know we weren't exactly sure the timing of Bill C-53 on this entire process um, and, uh, and we'll continue to see that through but we also continue to advocate for the supports needed for Métis citizens on, in all of our Métis governments. But it does point to, to, to a bit of division and, and conflict within the Métis Nation and I'm wondering if that does in your point of view affect what you're hearing from Ottawa as it tries to sort out uh, which level of government, which government it's going to be dealing with moving forward. I don't think it, I don't think it has anything to do actually with the the budget negotiations that we've got in place right now. Um, ultimately, you know, the Métis National Council advocates for four Métis governments, um, which is a majority of registered Métis citizens across the homeland. And uh, in order to create positive changes in the lives of Métis citizens who are also Canadians, um, that falls on our shoulders at the Métis National Council, and we'll continue to do that advocacy. Mm -hmm. Do you find it difficult though, as as you deal with this? 
this because you know going through uh, some of the comments being posted on social media there are obviously people uh, within the nation who, who are very hurt feel very strongly about the debate that's happening right now definitely there's been a lot of debate around bill c-53 um, I think a lot of the challenge actually comes from the lack of conversation and the lack of willingness for all, all of the sides to come together and actually have a conversation about what Bill C-53 is. Ultimately, what Bill C-53 is, is a piece of legislation that will allow for the implementation of self-government, which is the internal affairs of each of our Métis governments. It talks about um, being able to have elections, being able to draw down jurisdiction for children and families. It doesn't talk about anything that is largely uh, controversial, like lands and resources. The, the bill doesn't talk about those things. And I think, you know, if individuals were to take a look at the legislation itself, they would see that and it, it would cause less concern. Cassidy, can I always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. Time now for a look at what happened in politics today. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith opened a new office for her province in Ottawa, but most of the focus was on her controversial new policies concerning trans youth. We um, have announced our intention on a number of policy items and we're going to be putting the architecture and, the, and the, uh, the legislation in place in the fall. So we've got lots of time for consultation and we'll be able to get that feedback. But there are things about the process that I, I do want to investigate just to make sure that there is that level of rigor that has been recommended. The, uh, you are supposed to have a long period of time of counselling and living in the opposite uh, uh, gender or the, the, the gender um, uh, the, of choice and I just just from some of the stories I've heard I just need to make sure that that process is being followed so there'll be an, a bunch of consultation over the number in the next number of months. Conservative Party leader Pierre Poliev was also asked for his stance on Smith's proposal. Take a listen to a part of his answer. Time for Justin Trudeau to stop, stop distracting and dividing Canadians. Let parents raise kids and provinces run schools and hospitals. That's my common sense approach and it's time to bring it home. Also today, Poliev released a plan to combat auto theft largely focused on harsher sentences and tighter bail conditions. This comes ahead of a national summit to combat the issue hosted by the federal government scheduled for later this week. The Defense Minister Bill Blair is at NORAD headquarters in Colorado today, participating in a change of command ceremony. U.S. Air Force General Gregory Guillaume takes over as the new commander. I am confident that under your leadership, NORAD will continue adapting and evolving to meet the threats of our time. I trust that you will be fearless and forthright in leading NORAD as our two countries modernize our defense capabilities, innovate to meet the, the challenges of tomorrow. And I know that you will continue to forge the solid friendships, the effective and brilliant partnerships and strong alliances that are key to our success. And of these, there is none so great as the unbreakable bond between Canada and the United States. The Canadian military's former head of human resources is on trial this week for sexual assault. Retired Vice Admiral Hayden Evanson pleaded not guilty to one count of indecent acts and one count of sexual assault for an incident that allegedly took place in 1991. 
Edmondson stepped down as the head of HR in March of 2021, and his case was one of several that spurred an external investigation of the Canadian Armed Forces. And finally, the federal government has extended the foreign homebuyer ban until 2027. It was set to expire in January after originally coming into place in 2023. It bans foreign commercial entities and people who are not citizens or who do not have permanent residency from buying residential property in Canada. It comes as the country continues to grapple with a housing crisis. And that is Primetime Politics for this Monday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow, but up next, Esteve Jean avec l'Essentiel.